with that, I think I'm just going to dive right in here. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. If you need a Bible, read, uh, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. If you don't own one, as always, we want you to keep it. We want you to have the Scriptures um, in your home and in your heart. But we've been in Luke's Gospel, so if you turn to the New Testament... It's the third uh, book in the New Testament, Luke's Gospel there, and we are uh, in chapter 17. We've been going through this Gospel for quite a while now, <laughs> and every time we enter a new chapter, it feels like a moment to celebrate. Uh, so yes, here we go now into uh, Luke chapter 17. Let me read the first four verses to you. We'll pray and, and dive in. And he, uh, Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Let's pray. God, even as I read those words again and just, I'm just reminded or struck with the fact that the Jesus so often depicted by our culture as just kind of soft and gentle and um, it's just and and wouldn't wouldn't raise his voice and wouldn't speak a hard truth uh, it's just not the full picture of who you are in the scriptures I mean even right there you just you just come out and say it it'd be better for us it'd be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were dropped into the sea and then if you were to face God after leading uh, His people astray, causing others to stumble and to sin. As you are gentle and you are loving and you are kind and you do draw the sinners near and you do come for the broken, but you're also holy. You're also strong. You're also ferocious in your love and jealous for your people and your name. It's amazing. And Jesus, I pray today as we get into your word that uh, it would be you that we would see, that we would catch a glimpse of your glory. Not just those little, little rays of glory that we like, but the full picture, the full splendor. And I pray, God, for people in this room right now that may be in the thick of temptation, Maybe in the thick of this war that you're alluding to here. I pray that you would help us all to catch uh, 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 the vision that you're giving. So we need to watch. We need to keep watch on ourselves and keep watch on each other. For your honor and for our good. And I pray that you would use this sermon to that end. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, okay, so I don't actually have uh, an introduction. Uh, sometimes I come with, uh, you know, long, drawn-out introductions, and other times I just say, hey, here's what I'm going to do this morning. Well, that's where we're at right now. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I have two uh, thoughts or two headings that I'm really going to kind of organize everything under this morning. Uh, the first heading would be temptations to sin. And that's what comes out there in verses one through two in particular. The second would be the disciples self watch. The disciples self-watch, and that's what comes out in verses 3 and 4. Now, I should say up front, I'm not going to deal fully with verses 3 and 4 today. Mainly that first part of verse 3 is what we're going to focus in on when we get there, where Jesus is saying, listen, pay attention to yourselves. That's this idea of a, of a disciples self-watch. Now, let's dive in then to uh, the first point, temptations to sin, temptations to sin. If you look back at verse 1, uh, Jesus begins to warn his disciples and by extension us about what is here translated as temptations to sin. He says, listen, temptations to sin are sure to come or to the one through whom they come. But there are going to be these things he's calling temptations to sin. Now, we need to know, I think, that in the Greek behind this translation is actually a single word. Okay, and this will help us kind of catch uh, a little bit more of what he's after here. This single word in the Greek is the word scandalon, and perhaps you can kind of gather we might get a certain word from it like a scandal or other things like that. Um, and the, I guess in its original setting, this word was really uh, referring to what you'd call like the bait stick in a trap. Okay, so there's this uh, thing that would hold the bait and, and, and that'd be kind of what would entice you, draw you in. And then as you went for it, that would also be the trigger to your downfall. That's the word that Jesus uses here when he's talking about these temptations to sin. He's saying, listen, there are going to be these things, these scandalons that, that kind of entice you. They, they, they look good. There's bait, if you will, on this thing. And as you kind of move towards it, it's not what it appears. In fact, it actually ends up in your demise, in your destruction. It leads you down a path you never intended to go. You didn't think you'd end up there. If I could uh, maybe put another image on it for you, um, I just tell you a brief story real quick, and this will kind of hopefully again fill out what uh, I think Jesus is wanting us to picture with this idea of temptations to sin. So uh, maybe it was about a month or so ago, uh, my wife's uh, dad's side of the family had a family reunion up in Tahoe. So uh, we just went up for a day. And uh, that day, uh, what they decided they were going to do, apart from just kind of hanging out on the shore there, uh, would be to go to one of those stockfish ponds. All right. Have you ever, have you ever been to one of those stockfish ponds? All right. I, listen. Okay, you're laughing because, okay, this, this experience was ridiculous. I think, I think the idea is, um, you're supposed to kind of get an experience of fishing without all the, the headache. <laughs> and kind of a letdown, right? Like if you've ever gone fishing, I'm not much of a fisherman, but if you ever go, you know, it's like you wake up before dawn and you're kind of getting your tackle box, your license and your bait and all this stuff ready. And then you go out there and you sit all day and you maybe get a few nibbles and a lot of snags constantly read, you know, whatever. 
And you go home thinking you're going to have fish to put on the grill, but instead, you know, you're stopping at Wendy's or whatever. <laughs> Let down. And these stock ponds exist, I think, so that you can have an experience of fishing without any of the complexity and any of the letdown. So we're there in this place. We walk in, and I kid you not, it's like these these fish, are just, they're just everywhere. Like literally, if I wanted, I could reach down and grab one, you know, put it in my pocket, go pay for it, and go home. But... That wouldn't be the point. Uh, so they give you this little pole and they give you this little this uh, this this bait and kind of got that hook thing going on there. And we drop it in. I mean, all these kids are around and we just kind of drop it into the mass. Of fi- it felt like fishing in someone's koi pond. Right. Felt felt wrong. You just going to drop it in and within minutes. Within a couple of minutes, all of a sudden, every kid just had fish on the end of the line. Right. And uh, I'll tell you one other thing. Uh, and I'm a little bit embarrassed about this. So please don't think I'm any less of a man. I did not anticipate that this is what was going to be expected next. But so, you know, back when I did these sorts of things, you'd actually just kind of put them back or something. But here you weren't allowed to put it back. So you had to buy it. You know, that's their deal. They're going to fillet it or whatever. And so they expect that once you get that fish on the line, they give you this big, like, lead pipe, you know, and you're just supposed to bash that thing, right? You, you guys who fishermen's, right, you know, this is, this is kind of what you do, I guess, to put them out of their misery, or maybe it helps with the, the meat. I don't really know. All I know is as my kids pulling up, both of my girls have fish on the end of the line. Of course, I'm the man of the house, so everyone's looking to me. And they, they got the, they got the pipe there, and I'm thinking, I literally can't do this. Like, I'm not a hunter. I'm not a grizzly kind of a guy. I, like, like I'm a pastor, right? I don't bring judgment down on things. I, I, I preach grace. I save. You know, I want to like pull the thing over, drop it back in the, into the water and go free. You know, but I'm supposed to kill this thing. We got it on the end of the line. It's time to go. I, I couldn't do it. Now, I know I'm a hypocrite. I love a good tri-tip. I went out for fish last week. Uh, I just want to pick up my meat from Costco where it's pre-packaged. I don't want to be involved in this. But the reason why I say all this, sorry, the reason why I say all of this is because I think that's the sort of image behind this idea of scandal on. That's the idea of like a bait stick, if you will. It's, it's this idea that, that there's this hook, that there's something kind of on the hook, and, and, and it's hiding it. That it looks good. There's, there's this appearance of, man, that would be a tasty treat. I think I want to come after that. I, I, I could use a little midday snack, but then when you go in for it, you're on the line. And Jesus is here talking, and he's warning us, and he's saying, listen, listen, temptations to sin are, 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 are all around. That's what we'll see. They're going to come. There are hooks, if you will, everywhere. And if you kind of move towards those and you end up on the on the end of one of those, I mean, what Jesus knows is you're going to end up with your head bashed in. That's where this is going. It looked like a midday snack. It's going to end in your Demise, And so there are three things that Jesus is going to bring out here concerning these temptations to sin, excuse me, temptations to sin. Um, and I want to I wanted to kind of bring these out by way of, of, of just three observations. First, we see the inevitability of, of these temptations to sin and we'll see the personality of it and the end of it. 
Um, so the inevitability of it, that's if we keep reading in verse one, what we see Jesus say, temptations to sin are sure to come. Did you hear that? He didn't say they might come. They may be there, but some of you will kind of get off easy. He's saying, no, no, no. Temptations to come, temptations to sin are sure to come. Now, in one sense, this may be bad news for us, but in another sense, it's actually kind of goodness. I don't know how many of you have come to Christ and you kind of felt like, hey, I, uh, I, I expected, I anticipated my life would get better. I anticipated things would get easier. I anticipated that I come to Jesus and I kind of move from there into paradise. But instead, you come to Jesus and life maybe in some sense, gets harder. It starts getting a little rougher. Now, I, I know in some ways, of course, life gets a lot better. That's, is that going to give anybody seizures? We're like a horror movie right now. Um, uh, I know in some sense life uh, does get better because now you kind of know the one for whom you were created. Now you've come into relationship with God and you know his love. You, you recognize who you are in him. And I can attest to the fact that life in, in, a, in a deeper, uh, more substantial sense gets better. It gets more meaningful. Everything you do, you realize God is with you in it. You see your sins is forgiven. There are things that, that, that just can't touch on that. Your whole internal being is reworked and it's amazing. But there is that other sense where life on this side of heaven gets harder when you start to Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. It doesn't get easier. Sometimes it gets harder. And I want you to think about this with me because it really does, I think, make sense. Um, Before coming to Christ, the idea of temptations to sin, uh, in many ways, is really a foreign concept, okay? uh, Because sinning is a part of your nature at that point. Does, Does that make sense? Like it's just acting in accordance with who you are. You're not trying to resist sin uh, before you've come to Jesus. You are simply embracing, engaging, uh, 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 justifying it and moving towards it. You're going downstream. You're in the current. You're not fighting. You're just kind of enjoying the ride, going down the current of the world, the flesh and the devil. That's what happens. But then all of a sudden, Jesus gets a hold of your life. You bend your knee to him. And what do you find? man? But everything kind of turns around. And now you realize, well, I've been given a new nature. I have a new heart. I have God's spirit put within me. And the things that you used to just walk into, no problem, going downstream, no problem. Now you're feeling like, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe that's not where life is found. Maybe that's not, you know, the, 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 the right approach. In other words, you find yourself in tension. You find yourself now kind of kicking upstream, kind of swimming upstream against the current of the world, the flesh, and the devil. No longer are you on the devil's team. Now all of a sudden you're on the devil's hit list. Right? You start to realize, wow, to be born again in Jesus is to be born into a war. And there's hooks baited all around. 
So life in one sense gets easier, but in another sense it also gets much harder. I think this is the sort of thing Jesus is talking about like in John 16.33 when he says this, In me you will have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. Did you hear that? There's going to be a peace that the world can't take away from you in me. But while you're in the world, you will also have tribulation coming at you from outside. It's going to be hard when you when you side with me, you side against sin in the world and where it flows. So the inevitability of it, temptations to sin are sure to come. But as we continue reading, uh, now we start to see what I would call the personality of it. Um, and here's where we get this idea. Uh, we start to understand the manner in which these temptations actually come to us. It is quite surprising, I think, when we look at it. He says this, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. So two things here. One, uh, first, we, we realize that the temptations to sin are going to come to us through people. That's why I'm saying the personality of it. There's, there's, there are people here that are, are, are kind of conduits for this temptation. That's the first thing you realize. And then we start to see what kind of people we're talking about. Uh, and I think, uh, given the context, what we are looking at here, and this is the surprising part, these people through whom temptations to sin are sure to come are often leaders. They're often people of significance within the church. Now, I'm getting this because of the context that Jesus has been in conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees at this point, right? He just got done telling that parable of, of, of the rich man and Lazarus where the rich man clearly represented the Pharisees who were lovers of money and they were manipulating ministry to serve their own needs and they ended up in judgment. I think right here, he's hinting back at that saying, listen, man, if you keep leading people astray, this is what happens. But he's saying, there are going to be leaders. There are going to be people in the church. They look good. They sound good. They, 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 they seem to have the biblical knowledge. And they're going to lead you in the wrong direction. It's actually those guys through whom this temptation to sin is coming. And that's part of the concern. Jesus has is that we get it. I mean, this is probably filling out that idea of a baited hook, Right. I mean, it wouldn't be much of a wouldn't be much of a trick if the bait didn't look good. Like if you put like you know a, a stinky old sock on the end of the line, no one's going to go for that. But you put something that looks nice on the outside, all of a sudden people are going. So Jesus wants us to see that. He wants us to know. He wants us to know, man. It's not going to be Satan kind of dangling the 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 hook in there himself, right? Where you just kind of trace it up and you see like his little horns and his pitchfork. You go, okay, I'm not going to fall for that. And it's also not going to be those guys outside the church. I mean, we kind of, it, it, we will get tempted by things outside the church, no doubt. Uh, but we kind of, again, expect that. You know, like, you know, the, the guy that you used to roll with and get drunk on Friday nights is probably not going to be a good influence for you right now as you're trying to make decisions for Jesus. You kind of know temptations are going to come through that brother, Right? But Jesus wants us to see, no, it's, it's actually something more insidious than this. That yes, Satan's out there, and yes, people outside the church and all that and stuff that comes through your TV and all that's going to kind of lead you astray in many ways. But I want you to know it's also going to come through the church. 
It's also going to be present in your midst. And this is kind of recalling some of the things that Paul says elsewhere, like that the, uh, that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't just come to you with like his scales and his, his nasty, you know, whatever. He comes looking good in the form of leaders that have it all together or whatever it may be. That's the sort of thing we need to see. And that's really the scandal in all of this is it's, it's, it's not the guy with the pitchfork in his hand. It's not the guy with the cold one in his hand. It's the guy with the Bible in his hand. Me and others. And in many ways, you as well as followers of Christ. But we'll get there. It's within the church that these temptations can come. And that we need to kind of be alert to and, and, and understand. So there's an inevitability to it. There's a personality to it. Uh, let me at least give you one example um, of this from uh, kind of the early church. This has really been something you see throughout church history. But one of the things that's tragic but unavoidable if you're reading the scriptures is you, you see uh, the apostles, Paul, Peter, John, or whatever, in their epistles, they're constantly dealing with false teaching coming from false teachers who have infiltrated the church and are trying to kind of, you know, the ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing looking to take advantage in one way or another. Lead away from the gospel, lead away from, from, from Jesus, lead away from the way of life. They're constantly having to uh, lead people back and, 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 and call these guys out. Second Corinthians 11 is a great example of this. Let me just read this to you. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church there, and he says this, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, he's talking about Jesus, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So make no, make no uh, mistake here. Satan is involved. But it's how he goes about it that's so scandalous. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, see, they're talking about Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel, they're talking about Jesus, spirit, gospel. That's what these guys do. He says, from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So these guys are coming in and they're preaching different things. They're preaching aberrations from the true gospel, the true Jesus, but the true spirit. And you're just kind of going, that sounds good. Let's follow that. Then he comes down in verses 13 to 15, and this is the text I was just alluding to. He says this, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So he's saying they're going to look righteous. They're going to sound good. But you've got to be on alert. You've got to be aware. Temptations are sure to come, and they're coming through people like that. Now, I wonder if you caught the last line. I hope you did, because it's where I'm going next. He's talking about um, um, this idea that these guys, their end is coming, and it's going to correspond to what they truly were inside. Not what everybody saw on the outside, but what God saw. What God sees. And that's really what we, what we come to in Jesus' words as we keep reading in our text. And here's the idea of the, the end of it. So we've seen the, the inevitability of these temptations, the personality behind them, and now the end 
of them. Um, let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, it's a frightening image. Even if you don't know what a millstone is, you, you can catch it, right? A millstone was like this massive stone disc that they would use to grind grain. Uh, and it, often they'd be so heavy that only like a, a donkey or a beast of burden could kind of pull and move it. And he's saying, listen to me, listen to me. It would be better. It would be better for you to have one of those tied up around your neck and have you just dropped to drown in the sea than to have you kind of face God. Give an account for the way that you you, you sinisterly you 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 uh, in in a deceptive sort of way led his people astray, led them into temptation. You see, you would fare better at the bottom of the sea than before my dad on that day. I mean, there's something about the fury of uh, Jesus's love. For his people. I know it sounds scary, but it's actually quite amazing and, in a sense, comforting because it means man, he is going to protect you. He is going to defend you. When it talks about these little ones, it's talking about like his little flock. It's talking about his disciples, his people. He's saying, I will protect. I will. I will. I mean, we know how furious it's going to get, right? He's ultimately going to say, Hey, Dad, throw me into the bottom of the sea so that I can protect them from their sin and your judgment. But those guys that continue to threaten ultimately will be undone in the end. The end will correspond to their deeds and it's not going to be pretty. One commentator sums this up uh, well. He says, better to be dead than to be a false guide. That's the idea Jesus is after here. Now, let's move then to the second heading. So we see this idea of these temptations to sin. Now I want to look at uh, the disciples' self-watch. Um, as we kind of read on, what we notice is uh, the, that Jesus goes from here not to simply say, so, hey, y'all, listen up. Watch out for those guys. Watch out for those guys out there. Keep an eye out. That's not entirely what he says, is it? If you look at verse 3 at the beginning there, he says, rather, pay attention to or watch yourselves. Keep an eye, keep guard on yourselves. Now, I think the idea here is both. It's twofold. It's don't be led astray by one of those guys. Sure, keep an eye on yourself that you're not falling victim to that sort of a thing. But I think it's also keep an eye on yourself so that you're not becoming one of those guys. You see that there's a danger. There's a twofold danger for the Christian. One is that we would be tempted and led astray by by brothers that are not preaching the truth and and have false motives and things. But then the other is that we would, in fact, become one of those tempters that would lead other people astray. Let's start to catch into the idea. That, oh, man, I can I can make religion work for me. I can make the church work for me. I like this. I can get, I can get people to pad my, pat my back. I can get people to pad my wallet. I can get people to, this feels good. Let me kind of twist and see if I can shear the sheep just enough to get something for myself on the side. That's a real temptation for all of us, I would say. Now, 
So Jesus is saying, pay attention to yourselves. Um, here, of course, naturally, I thought about my own ministry. I thought about the gravity of, of being a pastor, an elder. You have to forgive me. There's colds that have been going around in my house, and I may be finding myself coming down with it. Um, but I thought about myself as as a, as a pastor, as a leader in the church, as one of these guides, so to speak, one of the guys up front holding a Bible. And I thought about some of the words that are spoken about guys like me in the church, like Hebrews thirteen seventeen that says, listen, I, I'm keeping watch over your souls and I will have to give an account to God for how I did. I mean, that, that's essentially what Jesus is talking about here is these guys that are leading. And listen, you might feel like you can get away with a lot. People don't see it. They may even praise you for it. But my father knows what's in your heart. My father knows what's going on behind the scenes. And you will give an account. That's a trembling reality for someone in my position. That's not to be played around with. Or I thought about that text that um, in 1 Timothy 4.16 where Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Did you catch that? I mean, that is a crazy statement. He's saying, watch your life, watch your doctrine. Because in so doing, not only will you ensure your own salvation, but you will actually ensure the salvation of those who are following you. In other words, if you don't watch your life and you don't watch your doctrine, I mean, you could just make a big mess of everything. Not just your own uh, Christian walk, but those who are following you, those who are looking to you, those who are trusting in you. It's a big deal. I remember, if I could just give a, a quick anecdote and then I'll um, move on. I remember uh, sitting around an elders meeting, and, you know, sitting around the table and, and talking. And f- I think it must have been that one of the prominent evangelical leaders, as often is happening nowadays, right? And probably forever. Now we just have internet, so we know all about it. But a prominent evangelical leader, you know, just fell into infidelity or something. And we were talking about this. And as we were chatting around the table, um, started realizing how many people, how many ministers, how many ministry leaders we've known over the years where that's been the story. Maybe from a distance, maybe never. I mean, Jerry, uh, he's no longer um, here in the city, but man, he's been here for, he was here for, I don't know how many years. And he saw, he, he could just keep going with stories about this church and that church. And I, I've sat around the table with a lot of you guys as well and heard your stories. And I mean, there are things that it's like, how are you even still in church? How are you even still ready to follow Jesus after the guys in charge, the guys up front with the Bible did that nonsense to you? Now, I'd say it's probably well over 50% of the people in our church that I talk to that have had horrible experiences with leaders, either in a cultic kind of thing going on where they manipulate and get you to kind of control you and won't let you go or, or, or crazy infidelity or just all manner of stuff. And as we were talking about these things um, uh, that day, I, I remember something kind of shifting in my mindset. Uh, I began kind of thinking, maybe, 
maybe I need to have a redefinition of what successful ministry really is. Because, you know, okay, the, the, the common trap is to fall into sort of the metrics and go, all right, here's what a good ministry looks like. Here's, what, here's how you know you're a successful pastor or leader. It's when you can really fill out, you know, a big building and you got three, four, five services and multiple campuses and people coming from all over and you're doing all this and reaching the city and the world for Jesus, right? You think, man, that's what a successful ministry is. And then I realized, these guys all had that. And they just blew it. Maybe it went to their head. Maybe it, you know, I don't know what happened. But a lot of these guys they fall, have all that and their ministry is not successful. It's a mess. And so I started realizing, man, forget those metrics. Forget that idea, that measuring rod. How are we doing? And start thinking, I just started realizing, this will be my ministry would be a success. If I don't cheat on my wife, that is a big win. I'm serious. If, if I don't uh, dilute, distort, twist the gospel to fill the seats, that is a major victory in my ministry. If I don't kind of say and twist and manipulate your conscience to get you to give me money, and get into your pocketbook and fill my own. Man, I will count that a major win for Jesus. That may sound grim, it may sound pessimistic, but gosh, if you read the Bible and you look at a church history, I think that's the truth of it. Do we want to reach the city for Jesus and fill the church? Yes, we do. But not at the expense of our souls and the gospel and salvation, Right? I just started realizing, my goodness, successful ministry would just be making it to the end, still in love with Jesus. <laughs> Not making shipwreck of my faith and bringing a boatload of people down with me. That would be awesome. If I could get to the end of my days and say what Paul says at the end of his ministry, then I have made it. Second Timothy 4, 6-7 I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's it. Right? Not, hmm, hey, how many people? And Let me see the numbers. Did I do it? No! I made it, Jesus. <laughs> I kept the faith. You say that, man. Oh, that's a successful ministry. That's what I hope to have. That's the sort of minister I hope to be. But I've got, according to Jesus, to pay attention to myself. Now, let me just blow this out now in your direction, because it's not just about the leaders. Like, oh, those leaders are really going to watch out. Okay, maybe so. That's Maybe there's a little emphasis put there. But, man, I mean, you've been hopefully in the church long enough, you've heard me say, man, any disciple of Jesus is to be a disciple, make, you know, making disciples of Jesus. That every saint is sent. That this isn't just a thing for me, but that every Christian is in one way or another influencing the city and those around them for Jesus, for good or bad. Right? Like that's your calling. It's not just, hey, a few of us are ambassadors here. No, it's the church's ambassador. I just saw something J.D. Greer said, and I love it. He said, listen, the church is not an audience. It's an army. 
Like, you guys are in this with me. You guys are on this mission with me. And therefore, paying attention to yourself is equally as important. That you both not be led astray by a guy like me if I start teaching bunk doctrine and things. And that you also not lead others astray as you try to influence them for Jesus. So the question then that we're left with is how? How do we pay attention to ourselves? How do we watch ourselves? What does it look like to do what Jesus, to enact what Jesus is is talking about here? How do I do it? How do you do it? I'll give us a few suggestions, three in total. Suggestion number one, make space in your life for God's word. Make space in your life for God's word. We'll get to this a little later, but one of the things you realize, and the reason why Paul is telling Timothy, watch your life and your teaching, is because, man, guys' teachings are kind of, they're prone to kind of wander towards the ways of man and tickling ears and things. And the only way you can kind of get a sense of what in the world is up or down in all this is if you're actually in the scriptures, not just hearing it from the guy on stage. The The same spirit that's in me is in you. And God wants to meet with you in his word, right? I'm here to help, hopefully. But it's you. And you guys are here to help keep me honest. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let me show you, uh, just kind of make the case for this, uh, from Second Timothy 3. I want you to listen to how the logic works here. I'm actually going to read the whole chapter. Because Paul's talking about the war around us and the temptations and the baited hooks hanging all around. And in light of that, he moves us towards the importance of spending time in God's word. And I'm saying, here's one of the ways that we can pay attention to ourselves, make space in our lives for God's word. Listen to Paul here. Second Timothy three, verse one. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here you go. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however... See, now here he's going to start moving towards, look at, this is the context of war. This is the context of temptations to sin are sure to come. And they're coming through people in the church that look good. But now he starts to get to one of the things we can do to push against this and prepare for it. Verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and from how childhood and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word, or every good work, I'm sorry. You've probably, if you've been in church for a while, heard Second Corinthians or Second Timothy three sixteen before about Scripture being God breathed and all these things. But I wonder if you recognize the context. It is all out war in the context, and he's saying, "Don't depart from the Scriptures and start following this other stuff." Remember what you've been taught, even from your childhood. I mean, just a shout out to the parents, right? I mean, gosh, good night. We're kind of doing studies and things around our table now, and it's. It's, it's awesome and it's horrible at the same time. He's like, Levi's throwing food and kids are, you know, screaming, yelling, can I get this? Daddy? I want seconds. What about dessert? We're trying to like do these still, you know, devotionals and studies and sometimes it goes better than others and it's like, oh, this is great. But man, I'm telling you, this is the point. Remember what you've been taught from childhood. Remember, remember the word because we're, we know our kids are, 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 are entering a world, a world at war. Spiritually, I'm talking about. And how in the world are they going to be able to discern up from down? And if that guy up on the stage talking about Jesus with big bright white smile and shiny lights and fog machines is telling them the truth or not, or if he's just after something else, something weaselly. Well, it's, hopefully it's going to be because mommy and daddy, wait, 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 mom and daddy got me in God's word. That's not what it says. That's not God's heart. What about this verse and this verse and this verse? That's the sort of thing that we're, Hoping to build into our kids is just discernment. So stay the course, moms and dads, if you're in the middle of that with us, and get in the fight if you're not. No. I wonder, though, if you did hear it. He just simply says here, there's a spiritual conflict. We need to be reading Scripture. We need to be giving ourselves to that if we're going to survive. And so the question that comes at us then is, what, what about you? Are you making space for this? I mean, I, okay, I know that this is Silicon Valley. I know that we all have stressful jobs, and some of you way more than I can even relate to, right? I know that it's hard even just to make ends meet a lot of times. I know that life is stressful, but I also know that this is a world at war. That this isn't just peacetime, kind of waltz into your day. I know that the devil has baited hooks everywhere. And he wants to bash your head in. And I know that one of the keys to kind of entering into that war successfully is to have the Word of God. Ephesians 6 calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. And let me just simply draw on that metaphor and ask you, what kind of a soldier goes to war without his weapon? Like, whoops, Commander, I forgot. Like, you're dead. It's over. So I just encourage you encourage you your life hangs on this make space to read god's word suggestion number two make space in your life for god's people make space in your life for god's people so god's word god's people again we're trying to ask the question how do we pay attention to ourselves and this one might seem kind of interesting but let me look at verses three through four with you 
He says this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, I will come back to those verses next week. And I'm actually really excited to talk about the concept of, of, of forgiveness within the context of um, uh, the Christian community. Anyone ever been burned in community? Everyone ever been hurt in church? Right? It's like, oh, how important forgiveness is, knowing where it comes from, where, where it comes from, how how it works. That'll be next week, but or well, I suppose a couple weeks out. I'm not preaching next week, but this week, all I simply wanted you to catch here is the logic, the flow of thought. Okay, I want you to realize that Jesus comes right out from saying, "Pay attention to yourselves." And he immediately just throws in this line, and if your brother sins, talk to him about it. I thought I was watching myself. I thought I was supposed to be in here doing this. And then we realized, no, actually, it's bigger. It's broader. It involves the whole body of Christ. It's the disciples self-watch, and we all kind of take part. It's not this me and Jesus sort of a thing, but it's a community project. That we all get in on this together. Pay attention to yourselves, he says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, let me say something about that word rebuke. Because I know, to our modern ears, it just kind of grates. You just, all we hear is self-righteous, uh, sort of under, overtones, like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. A guy who's smug, kind of standing you know, up on his little, his little soapbox and kind of... Shouldn't be doing that. Right? Am I the only one who hears rebuke that way? I don't hear, oh, you love me. <laughs> let, me sh- let me shift the Greek around for you a little bit. Because one totally reasonable um, um, interpretation of that word in the, in the lexicon is warn. Now, warn we get. We get warn a little better, don't we? Like, warn has those overtones of love, doesn't it? Like, you're headed in the wrong direction. There's a cliff over there. There's a hook on that. That's a bait stick. Don't go there. It's going to end bad. There's love. There's compassion in the warning. That's what Jesus is talking about here with this rebuke. Those who are in sin are headed somewhere that's not going to end well for them. And the idea is, listen, we're with you in this. We're watching out for one another in this. We have each other's backs. I think part of what Jesus is alluding to here is, um, well, okay, part of the nature of sin, and hear me on this, part of the nature of sin is to numb while it kills. Did you hear that? You, You with me? Part of the nature of sin is to numb while it kills, which means while it's killing you, you don't even hardly know it. Like if you just look at the Pharisees and things in the, in, in, in the uh, New Testament Gospels, that's what you see. You see guys who think they're awesome and righteous and they've got it all together. And Jesus goes, you guys are the furthest from the truth. You see, as you're in the throes of sin, it, well, you know you're deep in the throes of sin when you don't even know you're there. In fact, you think you're fine. It's like you're so busy enjoying the, uh, the midday snack that you don't even recognize the hook that's been set in your heart and your soul. Right? 
So the idea then is that people, brothers and sisters in Christ, need to be in this with one another. And we've got to be open to this sort of thing, even pursuing this sort of thing. And I know our culture is, listen, this is me and mine, and that's you and yours. Let's build a fence. You're there. I'm here. And we do that even in the church. And I'm just saying, Jesus is saying, that cannot work. It's not going to work. This is a world at war. You need one Another, let me just pause then and ask a few questions for you to reflect on. Think about this. Do you have any other Christians in your life who can help keep you on track, who can call you out when you're wandering into doctrinal and moral error? Do you have people who know you well enough and love you well enough to get into it with you for the sake of Christ and the good of your soul, to get in and warn? Do you have those sorts of relationships? Like, I'm going to come. Here comes a rebuke, brother. I love you. But watch out. Do you have any of those? Not nitpickers, okay? I'm not talking about that. We probably all have those. (laughs) But those guys, you know they're in it with you. Do you seek people out? Are you looking for that? Do you realize you need that? That sin is deceptive and there's probably a lot more going on than you don't even realize. And you need others. Do you let people in? Do you kind of respond to, you know, the, the casual question, hey, how are you? And, and with just kind of, oh, I'm good. And kind of give that little smile and go on your way. Or are you real with folks? Do you let people into your heart and what you're really facing? Are you actively caring? Now, this is going to flip it and ask you another question. Are you actively caring for others in this way and helping them along in their discipleship to Jesus? Not just, hey, is someone coming and finding me? But am I going and finding others? And that's where Jesus goes. He says, watch yourself and watch your brother and your sister. Love them. And be on alert. Pray. How can, where, are you feeling, where are you feeling tested? Where are you feeling those temptations to, that are sure to come to sin? Where, where are you feeling that? How can I help? Right? Are you running with others in the family of God or are you just kind of going it alone? Now, okay, listen. If, if as I'm saying some of those things, you're kind of going, whoa, all right, dang, I... I don't necessarily have that. Um, well, you're in luck because this is why we've created certain spaces in our church that just let me plug for a brief moment. That's more than just a, a ministry plug for us. This is, this is your life on the line. Uh, this is why we've created spaces in our church like home groups. I mean, you're not going to come here on a Sunday necessarily. I mean, props to you for being here. This is certainly part of it. I hope, getting in God's word together. But man, you're not going to get the life on life, people really knowing what you're struggling with or, or knowing you and loving you well enough to call you. You're not going to get that just kind of casually coming in and out on Sundays. It's going to be life on life stuff throughout the week. And so let me just encourage you, check out our home groups online. Uh, we've got about five or six of them, I think. And I'd encourage, check it out. Get involved. Now, is it ever easy to go? Again, I know this is Silicon Valley. I know that it's hard. I know that we're busy. It's never easy for me to go, and I'm the pastor of this church. But I'll tell you something. You get in on that, you stay consistent on that, and you start to say, whoa, this is important for my soul. Not just the times when everybody speaks loving things to me, but even the times when the church kind of hurts or people don't say the right word and you learn to pick up your cross and press towards and you get closer to Jesus together because of the, there's, I mean, there's so many benefits. So I know fall is here and people are kind of going, well, what's my schedule and how does everything shift and fit? I just encourage you, fit a home group into that. And if you can't, if for some reason you can't or timing or life stage doesn't work out, um, 
Or maybe you even just want to go deeper and you want to do home group and something else. This is also why we've created the space we call DNA groups, okay? DNA groups are even smaller than home groups. Um, and the point and the purpose in that is so that not only can we go deeper with one another than we could even in a home group, but you also can kind of flex and, and, and tailor make it to your own schedules. So if you've got a few guys you know that work nearby, I mean, don't just sit in your cubicle eating lunch or whatever. Like, Take an hour and go grab some guys and, and do this together. Get in life. And the DNA group structure just exists to kind of foster and facilitate that. And so I'm actually going to be this afternoon training a few ladies uh, to kind of do some of that. And I'll be looking to uh, get some guys in the middle of that soon as well. And just the heart behind this, guys, is we need one another. The heart behind this is this is a world at war. And, 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 and similar to the question I asked under the first suggestion, let me ask it now. What kind of a soldier goes to war alone? That's, it's not how you win a war. That's how you get killed. That's suicide, right? And yet we kind of do that. Jesus is saying, man, pay attention to yourselves. Get into God's word and get with God's people. Now, last thing, and this is where I'll end us, is to make sure, suggestion number three, just make sure you get the gospel. Make sure you get the gospel. Um, The gospel is, as Paul says, of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. It's going to be the thing that everything is going to hinge upon. And, 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 it, and, and the devil knows if he can distort the gospel, then you can basically discard the Christian. Because <laughs> that's what happens. Twisting the truth gets him going in a complete different direction. When we get into God's word, we make space for that. What we're really doing is just simply growing in our understanding of the gospel. When we gather, when we make space to gather with God's people, what we're really doing is is, is kind of gathering together around the gospel, ministering the gospel to one another, keeping each other in step with the gospel, that sort of a thing. And so then we got to know... If we're going to be able to stand against and resist temptation and no false teaching when it's there and no false application when it's there, we've got to know the gospel. And one of the best ways to come to know the gospel is to start to understand what the gospel is not. Let me give you just four gospel distortions. And in the middle of that, I think we'll start to see what the gospel truly is. And then I'll, I'll uh, be done. Gospel distortion number one. Um, I would call it, although you could call it many things, I'd call it the graceless gospel. Uh, The graceless gospel. This distortion says that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not sufficient for you. That maybe he got a good thing started there at Calvary on the cross, but you better add to it. You better come in and prove that you got what it takes. You made such a mess of your life that the only way God is going to open arms back up to you is if you clean this stuff up. Clean this stuff up. And some of us are going to feel that sort of temptation coming at us. We're going to maybe walk into church and you're going to see the people that look all put together. They got their pretty little smiles and their nice outfits and, 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 and they all seem like they, you know, they, they, they have what it takes. Their life is clean. And you're going to feel like that's what it means to be saved. That's what's required to get right with God. So you'll start to kind of play the game. 
feeling like, man, I got to clean up. I got to stop the cussing and I got to, you know, I want to join that ministry team. I want to go on that mission trip. I'm going to memorize those Bible verses. I want to get God on my side. Well, listen to me now. The gospel, the true gospel is God is already on your side. The point of the cross wasn't just to kind of get you started so that you could finish your way to kind of getting justified and right before God. The point of the cross is to say, listen, sinner though you are, he took your sin and you get his righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is perfect, imperishable, there before the Father, and he intercedes with it on your behalf before God. No, that, why does the Bible call us saints? Why? Because you're because you're a saint in practice? No. In Jesus, yes. Atonement's sufficient in him. Distortion number one is this graceless gospel that moves you towards good works. It maybe looks good on the outside, but the heart just gets enslaved with a different set of sins. Distortion number two I'd call the lawless gospel. This is kind of the opposite side of things. The graceless gospel says, man, you better clean up or you're not getting getting right. The, the lawless gospel says, hey, since he cleaned you up, since he did all the work, who cares if you're right? Who cares if you, if you, if you, you know, sin or continue to live in it, go off and sleep with this or that girl or, or, or make, you know, this or that kind of a, a sketchy move at work. Like, who cares? Jesus died, rose for you. His righteousness is yours. Heaven is yours. Keep living like the devil. That's another distortion that you see the apostles dealing with and you see it all throughout church history. So some of us are going to be tempted to go in that direction, to overplay grace. And we forget that grace doesn't nullify the law. It helps us fulfill it. I've said this many, many times, but sin is not sin. God doesn't call sin just at random. Okay, Sin is, is sin because it's destructive, because it's like a cancer set in the heart of man. And so let me tell you something. Any gospel that would allow you to continue to live in sin... And just say, oh, who cares? It's not the gospel. And you got to hear me on this. I'm not saying you get right by your good works. I'm saying he makes you right. He gets inside and he changes you. And so you know you're justified when you start to become more and more sanctified. You know you've encountered the love of God for you personally when it's shifted you around and started making you a more loving person. Because that's what the healing grace of God does. And if you just kind of want to keep sinning so that grace may abound, Paul would say, you've clearly not experienced true grace, the true gospel. Because it will change you. It will set you free. Distortion number three, we might call the social gospel. This distortion moves away from spiritual and eternal realities and maximizes in concern for society here and now. So the social gospel is this idea that, listen, we're tired of sitting around in church talking about a book, an old book. It's good for nobody. Let's get out. Let's talk about the real problems facing the world today. Let's talk about poverty. Let's talk about uh, racial inequality. Let's talk about those sorts of things and, and do work there. That's what the gospel really is, is it brings that sort of stuff to bear on the culture. Now, is there uh, truth to that? Yes, but as always, it's kind of a half-truth. Did Jesus want to, to reform culture and society? Yes and amen. 
He absolutely did. But here's the thing you come to realize. He actually understands that the, the real ills plaguing society are deeper than we even realize. He sees the problems run even deeper, and he actually uh, has a vision for reform and success that, that, that goes even higher. Like he wants equality. He wants justice. He's just going to have to go a different way. To get, he's got to go at the human heart. He's not going to get there by way of policy or program or some little picket sign. He's going to get there by way of the cross. So, man, we ought to be involved in the culture. Absolutely. Social reform, fine. But the deepest reform is that which happens in the soul as an individual encounters Jesus in his grace. Don't fall for that distortion. Finally, distortion number four, which you might call the prosperity gospel. And we've talked about this before. This is just the thing that makes God your sugar daddy in the sky, right? You come to Jesus, you do religion, you do the stuff so you get, so you get his stuff just kind of prostitutes God to get something. You don't love Him. You don't want Him. You just think it's going to bring healing to your body or money and into your bank account. And some of us are going to be tempted to go that way, but let me just tell you, God wants to give you so much more than just His stuff. He wants to give you Himself. That's the gospel. The truest gospel is, is, is sinful human beings coming into relationship with a holy God who loves them. There is no amount of money or stuff that can replace what it truly means to become a beloved child of God and to know He's forever for you. That's amazing. God doesn't just open up His pocketbook for His children. He opens up His heart. He opens up His lap. He says, come on in. Come on in. So at the end of the day, uh, we talked about at the beginning this scandal. We talked about the, the scandal. Uh, the scandal on the idea that all these men who look righteous on the outside are truly sinners on the inside and are prone to fall into this. But the Bible talks about another scandal. The Bible talks about the scandal of the cross, the stumbling block of the cross, the mystery of the cross, the reality that the only truly righteous one was treated as wicked, was treated as the sinner was treated in our place. That's the gospel. And we need to know it. We need to live there. We need to be in God's word, fixated on it. We need to be in community, ministering uh, to one another with it. Because this is a world at war, and temptations are sure to come. Let's pray. God, we need your help. Thank you that you show us the way forward in your word. God, I pray over the people in this room right now, and I ask the places that they are experiencing temptation, would you bring deliverance? The places that they're just kind of wanting to go this or that way towards this or that distortion, I pray that you would right now in these moments allow them to see the hook set in that bait. Allow them to see it. Open their eyes. God, keep us on the narrow way. We know that wide is the path that leads to destruction. Seems good. God, help us to follow behind you, Jesus. Help us to trust the true gospel and the Savior who's with us even now. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.